hey, this is the moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. I'm really excited about this. My guest today is Steve Pressfield, a great novelist and screenwriter, and really uh, a guy who has written some nonfiction books that are among the most important books for creative people that I've ever read. The War of Art, which I've mentioned on this show many times, is a book I wish I had when I was starting out. And, and for me, it's one of the two best books ever written, along with The Artist's Way, about um, what you have to do in order to figure out how to create the work you were meant to create. And um, I've gotten to know Steve over the last 10 or 15 years. I forgot, I wrote him somehow and we got in touch and had a few breakfasts. And uh, so he knows the regard that I have for him. And uh, I'm gonna try to make the most of this uh, interview time with Stephen Pressfield. Thanks for being here, man. Hey, thanks, Brian. It's great to see you again. Uh, yeah, it, it really is. Um, I've been thinking about this conversation a lot. I, I guess I wanna start here, when you were writing War of Art, when you started thinking about why it's so scary to do this work, did you have any idea the impact that it was going to have? None whatsoever. You know, I sort of had, uh, and in fact, the War of Art didn't have any impact for a long time. You know, my, um, I was, uh, my partner, Sean Coyne, who some of you guys may know, um, he had his own independent publishing company at the time called Rugged Land, and he brought it out because we couldn't sell it. I couldn't sell it to anybody else. And he thought he thought it was really great, and he, he went to uh, great lengths with the uh, advanced reader's copy. I don't know if you've ever seen that, Brian. It has like a silver cover. It's really like the, a hard, it's a hardback. And we thought, oh, this is going to make a splash, you know? And it just sort of, I won't say it sank without a trace, but it didn't make any very, any much of a, of a splash. And it then just sort of took a long time, word of mouth, bump it, bump it, because it came out in 2002. And so when it's been did you start to time. find that it became <clears throat> sort of this thing like that people would pass one to another? Maybe in the last seven or eight years or something like that. And then I was on Oprah a few years ago, and that really put it into orbit, you know, such as it is in orbit, you know? That right. was that was the big the big inflection point. I guess I I found you before I found your work before you were on Oprah, I guess. I don't even How know did you I, find it if I may ask? You know, I was trying to remember who I heard mention it. Well, I've always been so taken with this idea because my own story is being a blocked writer and I want to get into your story. I, I actually, you don't do, you don't do that many interviews. So I don't want to talk about myself, um, <laughs> and, but and, and you're gifted at taking the spotlight off of you and putting it on someone else. So I'm not going to do it, but I needed it. I found it because I've always uh, wanted to put up bulwarks against falling back into being blocked and unable to do the work. And someone said, Oh, this is a great book. And I remember just loving it. But, can you talk about, because you don't do that many interviews, could you kind of set the stage for who you were before you started actually being able to become, as you call it, a professional, which doesn't mean getting paid in the way you right. use the expression. Yeah. yeah. Can you just talk about where you were in your life and the, the way in which not doing the work was causing you pain? That's a great question, Brian. I mean, I could go on for hours Please on do. that. Please do, we're here. And we throw in, you know, divorce, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> Um, well, you say in the new book, your new book, which is called The Artist's Journey, you say uh, that you were 
uh, driving a cab. You were writing a novel. You say, I was so scared that, and I didn't know this then, that I blew up the novel in the last chapter and blew up my marriage and my whole life as well. But talk about that a bit. <laughs> well, let's see. Uh, all right, I'll probably, I'll get into maybe some stuff that's a little boring, but we'll go for it. I, my first job was in advertising here in New York, and I became like a junior copywriter making, you know, $200 a week or something like that. And I had a boss named Ed Hannibal who quit and wrote a novel, and it was a hit. You know, and I'm like 22 or 23 years old at this time. So I thought, well, shit, I'll just do that sure. too, you know? So, you know, cut to two and a half years later, I'm ready to, I'm at, you know, page, you know, 299 of a 300 page novel and I panic and I can't finish it. And, you know, not that it was any good anyway. So, bottom line, you know, the devil came out, the devil made me do it. I blew up my marriage, et cetera, et cetera. And I got on a kind of a, my, what I think of now is kind of a hero's journey. I got on, but it was sort of, you know, I wound up just working jobs all around the country and sort of running away from from writing. And from time to time, I, I would come back to New York, get another job in advertising, save up money, write another book that nobody would want, nobody would buy. And again and again, I did that, you know, with... Uh, I mean, there were times when I started out from one coast to the other in my old van with like 40 bucks in my pocket, that kind of thing, you know? So it was really an odyssey of- What uh, did it feel like to like live in your skin then? Uh, well, I mean, it was quite adventurous in that you were sort of at the absolute edge of everything all the time, <laughs> sure. you know? I'll tell you one little story for whatever this is worth. I was in New Orleans at one point. I'm living in the back of my van, and I have no money and no job and nothing. And I and I pulled in just to find a place to park for the night in some lot that had you know shells on the you know the way they do down there. And I woke up the next morning, and it was a banana company. It was a banana importing company. The sun had just come up, and they had a gorilla in a cage outside the back of the banana company. You know, and uh, so. I opened up the side doors of my van, and a guy comes out from the banana company, and he has two bananas. He gives one to the gorilla and one to, and one to me. That's awesome. Without saying a word. Right. And then, well, that sends so, you on your way nicely. <laughs> so anyway, that's, so that's kind of what it that's was like. That's like a Eugene O'Neill, the great ape or something. <laughs> yeah. Suddenly you're face-to-face -face with, uh, with this ape. But you're, you're telling it jovially now, but in both books, in both the new book and in the war art, you do talk about the sort of desperation that you felt also. Oh, yeah. And the, um, be, it's important. You know, a lot of people, you asked me before who listen to the show, and many people who listen to the show are at some kind of a precipice. They're and, I bet, yeah. And they're at an inflection point. Um, and I think some kind of self-loathing and the desire not to give into it is at the heart of what you write, what you're writing about in these books. So- that and I had this feeling, this that inchoate desire to do the work and being unable to, and then turning bitter. And and so, can you just talk a little bit about? So there was the adventure and the spirit, but also the cost of running. Yeah, that's but uh, it's, it's a great one, and you're absolutely right. I mean, everybody that's listening to this, that's feeling that right now, they know exactly what it is. I mean, it's it's uh, you know in movies. You have scenes where the detective gets beaten up, yes. right? And they just break his ribs and kick him and throw him in the gutter. And I think the reason we all can relate to that is that that's what we're doing to ourselves at these moments. Because oh, yeah. we know our daemon is in there 
that's telling us we had got to do X, Y, Z, and maybe we've tried it a bunch of times. And But we also know we haven't really yet committed. We're sort of like people who are drunks, but haven't yet admitted that we're alcoholics, that we have a problem, that we're being beaten by this force that I call resistance in the war of art. So you're, you're absolutely right, Brian. Self-loathing is the, is the term. And you even hate yourself for hating yourself. Yes. Right? It's like, what's wrong with me? Why, why can't I just, you know? Um, but it seems in some crazy way that that's necessary, you know? That kind of suffering is necessary to push us so far down that we finally do hit bottom. You know, you were I was listening to your podcast with Seth Godin, and you were talking about Bob Dylan. I think one of the things that I sort of envy and hate about Bob Dylan is that he kind of found his metier so young, you know, and he didn't, it seems at least like he, at least he was doing his thing and he knew it, you know, he was, he'd found his groove. I, yeah, I mean, I've clearly thought about the Dylan thing a great deal because the the myth of Dylan, and as Seth and I were talking about, of this this level of gift that he had uh, almost makes it seem like the rest of us are frauds and fakers no matter what, right? If an artist like him or Miles exists, and of course Seth's view on this is, is different, uh-huh. but the other way you can do it is find they're the outliers, but then the rest of us can just punch it out, right? We can uh-huh. just try our best if we get in there. But, but why do you think it's, and I know you've thought about this a lot, why was it so hard for you? You said you wrote a couple books, but you weren't really doing it. Like, what's yeah. the difference? What is what is the sort of difference in the level of commitment you're talking about? Since when you say amateur and professional, you're not talking about getting paid. What is the difference between a sort of dilettante-ish approach or um, a casual approach and a committed approach? What has to cha- what has to happen inside of you to make the approach different? Ah. Uh. By the way, Brian, these are great questions that you're asking. I'm so glad that we're talking about this and not other stuff that we could be talking about. Good. Um, I think if you think about people, you say to somebody, well, would you like to be a brain surgeon? And they say, yeah, that sounds great to me. And then you think, well, what do I got to do to be a brain surgeon? Suddenly you realize, or what do I got to do to be a concert pianist? Everybody can sort of really, holy cow, what do I have to do? Uh, mentally, I've got to commit. I've got to spend hours. I've, I've got to basically banish everything else from my life except maybe a oh, marriage and children. And, uh, but somehow, everybody thinks they can write, and everybody thinks that a novel is an easy or, or whatever is easy to do, particularly screenwriting. Everybody thinks that's easy because there's a lot of white space on the pages, right? <laughs> or writing, you know, for uh, billions or something. It can't be that hard. It's just a TV show, right? But... So that's the level of of commitment, I think. If you want to be a brain surgeon, if you want to be the ambassador to Moscow, what does it take to do that? Well, do you think that Scott Fitzgerald or Ernest Hemingway or Toni Morrison, is it any lower level than those people, you know, or Bob Dylan? They're not. So the, I, I think for me, that sort of awareness unfolded over years and years and years where I thought, well, if I only work this hard, right. then maybe I, I'll do it, you know? And so I worked that hard and <laughs> nothing happened, you know? Holy shit, I better work like twice as hard or be twice as committed. But I do think at some point it it truly becomes like a life and death thing where you just say to yourself, if I can't do this, I'm going to have to kill myself or I'm going to have to do something desperate. But it's, well, you know, you just unlock something about the Dylan thing for me, which is... He did this, right? We can say the talent or like the talent, but he got in his car 
and he left Minneapolis and he didn't leave himself any other options. Yes, true. He, he fully did it, right? He went to that hospital to talk to Woody Guthrie. Yeah, yeah. He came to Plus, New York. Plus, that was at a time when nobody was doing that. It wasn't like you, this was a thing. No, he, you couldn't do he it. He invented it, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. But I mean, he just decided, I'm going to make up who I am. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to will myself to be this yeah. other human being yeah. in order to become the artist I want to become. You know, there are these classic scene. I can't remember whatever this is from, some ancient thing. I'm sure it's happened many times through history. The concept of burning the boats. Sure. You know, where the army lands on the shore and the general says, burn the freaking boats. You know, well, there's no way we're going back. But what did that look like to you? You, know, you tell in the new book the story of when you finally did these this, this two hours of writing on an old typewriter. Yeah. And how in doing it, you realized, okay, I actually did something here. You were... Where were you in your life at that moment? You had 40 bucks in your pocket. And you know, the non-romantic version of that is you were a smart dude who only ended up without a marriage, without a job, with just $40 in your pocket, right? What happened inside you? You felt like it was life or death where you finally got the courage. Because one thing you mentioned over and over in these books is that the incredible fear we have of being, uh, of revealing our specialness, and that if we reveal our specialness, we might it, we might get crushed somehow. Can you talk a little bit about that? Now, which which question are we talking well, about? Well, let's the, talk about where. Well, here's what here's what they tie in. <coughs> your your own struggle with revealing first to yourself and then the world the beautiful part of yourself. That's a great, it's a great question, but I must say I don't really feel like there's a I, a beautiful part, you know, or I certainly don't feel like, or never felt like, oh, I've got this beautiful part. Well, this is important to say that I'm a, I'm afraid of revealing. Right, that wasn't a conscious thought. Never. But you talk you about the superconscious all the time in your work, right? Yeah, and but at that time, struggling to kind of come up from the bottom, yes, or even get to the bottom, I just wanted to write one sentence, you know or just get out of this one hour that I was in. And the idea of producing anything that was good or that anybody cared about was like so far beyond what I was thinking about. You know, I was just in pain. And this was the only way, having tried everything else, that the pain would stop was to, tr to try just to try, I'm, I'm talking about writing stuff, right? Putting in an hour or whatever it was. and But how is this trying different than the prior trying? Uh, that's that's a, what I'm trying to get to okay. for people to understand. Question. Because, well, the moment you're talking about, I, I write about it in The War of Art, and I was in a, in a sublet that was not very far from here where we are right now. It was only it was on the east side. And that was uh, it was a night, and I was all by myself, and... Uh, uh, all I did was sit down and, and at the typewriter and wrote for like an hour or two hours. And, and, and that kind of, that was sort of a critical moment for me. Everything turned around for me in that moment. But I had already written like two books at that point all the way through. I'd done all kinds of writing. But for some, well, I think that I had been, I had stopped writing. I'd kind of given up uh -huh. for maybe... I don't even know how long, a year, two years, three years or something, before this moment when I sat down. I said, this is going to kill me. I can't do it. It's, there's no point. I hate it. Da, 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 da. So finally, in this moment, in, in my sublet, where I sort of thought, I remember the night I thought, 
well, who can I do? What woman can I call? You know, what drug could I take? Well, where could I go to this is distract myself? To be out of myself, to not yeah. have to live in this head and this yeah. soul. Can I go see my friend over or whatever it is, uh-huh. right? And I just thought, I just cannot do this one more time. I've done it a million times. You know, shit, let me just pull out this freaking typewriter and let me, and I, so I had no hope that it, this was going to make any difference. You know, I didn't even know why I was doing it. I thought it was just the dumbest thing in the world. Never worked for me before. It only tortured me. Yeah. So I sat down and I wrote something for like two hours. I don't even know what it was. You know, I was trying to write a story or something. It was just terrible. And I knew it, whatever it was, it was nothing. It wasn't anything worth anything, you know. But when I finished, as I tell the story in the book, I went in to wash the dishes in the kitchen and I suddenly realized that I was whistling. And I just sort of took a little inventory of myself and I felt, shit, I'm okay. You know, I, I felt calm for like the, the self-loathing went away. And I sort of said- Through to, the work. And I said to myself, you know what? I must've turned some corner. I must've hit bottom here because this thing that didn't work before writing now seems to work. And I also thought, well, I can keep going on this. You know, I mean, as bad as today was in terms of quality, you know, I've got years ahead. Let me try tomorrow and I'll try tomorrow. And I really, it was just a tremendous load came off of my- back because I felt like, ah, finally something works for me. It didn't work before. I've done it before and it didn't work. So I think what must have happened on some level was I hit some kind of bottom at some point. You know, I just run away so many times into so many distractions that I just wore them out. I couldn't do them anymore. I was so bored by them. When you were writing earlier, was some part of you not, because you, you, in the new book, the way you talk about blowing up the, that book, you almost make it like it was willful. Like you weren't ready yet to grab, the, in the hero's journey, you weren't ready to answer the call yet. I think that's true, even though I didn't know that. Of course, of course we don't know it at the yeah. time. Yeah, By the um, way, Brian, these are great questions. Thank you for asking them, they're great. Well, it's, <coughs> I know you write the books. So first of all, I've, uh, you know, I asked you some of this stuff when we had, when we had those breakfasts, uh-huh. I was, you know, I'm always dancing with this because whatever work someone's trying to do, taking the risk to do your best work is always frightening. But it's the only I have found, other than the love of your family, which it all ties together for me, um, it is the only thing that can shift your state that radically. Um, and so that's why I always want to help people get uh-huh. there, right? I have this theory, and I talk about it um, a decent amount on here, which is when you don't find a way to access the best version of yourself, the most creative part of yourself, something in you dies. And when something in you dies, it's like any other kind of death. There's a toxicity that flows from that. And that toxicity will leach out of you onto those you love. And the bitterness spreads. True. And... Um, and for me, when I was 30 and I was feeling all those things, unlike you, I was in a good job. I had money, but I was miserable. And I, had, I was married to the right girl. Uh-huh. And I had just had my kid who I love more than anything in the world. So, you know, my, I have two kids, but the same. And, uh, uh, but I was miserable until I committed to showing up every morning. And, and prior to that, whenever I would write, I would stop. I would, couldn't finish anything. Uh-huh. That, just, was, that was my thing too, by the way. How, so how would that happen? You, I would get to the end and I would blow something up. You know, you I mean just you would just stop, or I would, you know, I would what they say in psychology, act out. 
Right. You know, I would do something, sleep with somebody, and you know, just that distract kind of your thing. whole, take your whole life. Yeah. Basically, you would do something to take your head out of the thing that made you feel good. Yeah. The work. You know, a friend of mine tells me about uh, anytime you're in an accident, like a car accident, that's what it is. You know, you're trying to, you break your leg. Oh, now I can't play basketball, you know? That that sort of thing. You just self destruct in, in some way. And in a in a movie, if you write that scene in a movie, everybody can relate to it, right? They go, Oh, look at this guy, you know, or this gal. But the the wonderful thing that you have done is that you've sort of codified this process. You've codified the the uh, a remedy. And can, you know, let can you define for us this idea of resistance? And talk a bit about the forms that it takes, the way it sneaks up on you, and then what you've and talk for a minute here, like talk for a while, uh-huh. and what it, what you have found is the only way to keep it at bay. Um, just in case people can't read the whole book. Right <laughs> well, uh, you, you know, um, you obviously know the spine. You sit down to you're sitting right now in front of your little laptop. Yes. So if you were to be sitting down to to write to do another to a show, a movie, a book, whatever it is, radiating off that laptop into your face is going to be this negative force that's trying to say to you, have a drink, go somewhere else, don't do this, it's too hard, you suck, you're never going to do anything good, nothing, no idea you've had is original, it's all been done before, you're a loser, we hate you, you yes. suck, right? So that is, I mean, in Jewish terms of mysticism, that's the Yetzer Hurrah. that's this negative force between us and our soul, our neshama that is trying to communicate good things to us. So for me, when I sort of realized that there was this force, which I call resistance with a capital R, that was tremendously liberating because I never, I always thought, well, between me and the object I want, like to write a good book or to do something, there's really nothing. I just have to do it, you know? But in fact, there's this giant, you know, devil, uh, monsters of the id from Forbidden Planet, um, you know, trying to to stop us, and and it's well, a seductive thing, right? It, so it's not just it, it's not just pushing against you; it's tempting you. You say it's tempting also. you. Distractions. I mean, the reason I always say, if you want to make a billion dollars, come up with some idea that reinforces resistance. And like the internet is the greatest invention in the world. Twitter and Facebook and all this stuff, I hate them because they're just, you know, distraction. In fact, it's an entire industry built on distracting you. Clickbait and all this kind of crap that's out there, you know. So anyway, (laughs) just recognizing that there is this force. And again, another couple of corollaries here. The more your soul needs to do some great work or whatever it is, the project you have in mind, the book you want to write, the movie, whatever, the more resistance you will feel to it. So in a way, when you feel massive resistance to something, it's a good sign because it shows that uh, it's like resistance is this devil and it can look into your soul and say, ah, Brian, I can see he's got this book in mind and this is going to save his soul if he can do this book. Well, let me, I'll rally everything and work on him, you know? I'll throw women at him. I'll throw money and distract anything at all to bring it. So to move on to the, when you were saying, well, how how can you possibly defeat this? I mean, to me, the concept that worked for me was the idea of turning pro. Uh, that an amateur who thinks with amateur habits and acts like an amateur will be defeated by this negative force, by resistance. 
But a pro, if you think of a pro athlete, Kobe Bryant, LeBron James, you know, go on down the list, Tom Brady, these guys play hurt. They know that they've got to be at their best. You know, every they, they accept no excuses for themselves. They, uh, they have an incredibly high level of aspiration. Bob Dylan, you name it, right? They're aiming really, really high, and they won't let themselves fall short of it. And they'll do the work in the face of adversity. You know, I, that's why I sort of wish somebody should do a documentary that really shows you what Tom Brady does in a day or Julian Edelman or whatever. You know, I'm sure these guys are— If you are keep naming Patriots, I'm going to kick you out of the studio. <laughs> Let me just say that right now. Okay, I'm not a Patriots fan either, yeah. but you know but what yes, I mean? They yeah. are pros. They're pros, right? You got to give them that. And uh, Oh, yeah, so, top flight. Um, yes, it's incredible. Um, the resistance, I want to talk— So uh, just to put more of a face on it, Resist, I'm asking you, resistance is um, you're about to sit down to work and suddenly you realize, I haven't called my dad in a while, <laughs> right? It's not exactly. just, exactly. it's not just I haven't had a drink. It's not just, hey, I want to get fucked up. Right. Right. It can take, it's sort of anything. It's very diabolical, subtle, devious. It really will fool you, you know? Um the word I use is protean. Yeah. You know, it'll assume any kind of shape to, to fake you out. And it's unbelievably creative in the way that it can seduce you. You know, um, David O. Russell's movies are really all about self-sabotage and the sabotage of others to... Uh, yeah, and, 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 and that, that um, you talk about the, um, the, the plane... Uh, whatever's on the highest plane versus the lower plane. So even something that seems noble to do might be the resistance if it's keeping yes. you from the even more sacred yes. task. And that, I also have my own little motto that I say to myself, when in doubt, it's resistance. What I mean is if some, if you have a thought, well, maybe I really should go to Mother Teresa's in India and, you know, that's resistance. <laughs> Don't, it, it, it is resistance. Let me say one other thing Please. here while we're at it that, because uh, I know you've been saying, Brian, something, things about uh, working at your highest level and bringing your most beautiful. I think that what works is just doing the most mundane stuff. Like uh, if you wanted to be a concert pianist, sitting down and just doing scales for an hour, and that will, that's enough. You know, that, that uh, the muse likes that. The muse approves of that. You know, in other words, it doesn't. You don't have to be operating at the highest level immediately. The lowest level is just fine. Yeah. When I say, of course, you're you're a hundred percent correct. When when I say the highest level, I'm not talking about the work you're producing. I'm saying I'm talking about um, the secret thing that you think is your best, the best part uh -huh. of you, which uh -huh. is if you think, man. The secret voice tells me I'm a really a writer, or I'm really a piano player. Then yeah, start playing scales. Yes, uh, start playing okay. scales. Start doing the thing. You know, when I did stand up, I was terrified of it my whole life. I knew I was going to suck at first, but I had to go suck. I had to go get in the and clubs did that and work suck. For you, it was great. Of course, uh, it worked wonderfully well. <laughs> yeah, because a year and a half later, I could do five minutes and uh -huh. work, and it was fine. I had to get through sucking at it and just showing. 
you know, you have to just show show up. I take my hat off here for doing that. That to uh, me is like the bravest so thing in the world so to get up there. I could never do that. Yeah, but it's the same thing. I I realized I was running from it, so uh-huh. I had to. I had to. Uh-huh. I was blocked writing something, and I was trying to figure out why. And I was like, I'm blocked because there's this other thing that I've wanted it, and and, I, and through that I got unblocked and uh-huh. was able to get the other thing going because it was another way. Talk about the fear. What what are the things this ties in? What do you what have you found as you as you've examined it yourself and then talk to people who've come up to you to talk about this work? What's so scary? Why is it so scary to try to do something like this? That is a great question. I'm not even sure I, I know the answer except that it's it's on the soul level some way. Yeah. Um you know, uh I guess it comes. I still have never. I've I've said this, but I don't know if I've even really grasped it. The idea of that we're more afraid of being our the best version of ourselves, of really coming into that element, because it's, it's like if we have that power, mm. you know, then tremendous responsibility comes with it, and we can fall and fail. But I, I think, you know, on the soul level, some way, like before we're born. Somebody, an angel, must put like a little gold token in our hand. And it said, this is the Brian that's that was meant to be, is born to be, right? And then we get in this on this, this level of life, and we forget that, but we kind of know it on some deepest level. And we know that uh, we are capable of X, Y, Z, and that if we don't go for it, you know, it's going to be the consequences. You know, we're on the next life. We're going to be, you know, come back as worms or something. I like that you can something. mix the Buddhism and the Kabbalistic thought uh-huh. together. It's all into one. It's all the same thing. You it know? Is, yes, I think it, it but is too. I, but I think it is a fear of being our best version of ourselves. Although I can't imagine why that is, except that you know, the devil, and there is a devil. That's what he hates the most. He doesn't want us to do that. Well, if we so, show the best version of ourselves, um, a scary facet of that is if I somehow find a way to get to that place and it's not good enough. Ah, uh, maybe that's it, Brian. Maybe and, that's right. And yeah. my, yeah. you know, what the if it's idea, not good enough? Yeah. What if I do that uh-huh. and I present this? Beautiful, perfect thing, uh-huh. and you don't want it. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, I remember it when gets I was very Talmudic. When it? I was younger at this stuff, I remember the feeling you would. I would want someone to when I was working on records back in the days when I was a record uh-huh. executive, and you would work with an artist and get this song right. You would play it for somebody. I would. I would play it for somebody. I would want them to hear it once, look at me, and say. And wordlessly just jump out a window because <laughs> they never had to hear anything else again, uh-huh. right? And there's some part of this, I think, that we, in exposing our, in exposing ourselves that way, we're we're we feel very naked. Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking as you're saying this, Brian. Maybe it's even beyond that. Maybe it's we have this idea that we have to be great. In order for God to love us, or for order for our lives, and maybe the, I mean the bottom line is we really don't have to, you know. But somehow, yeah. you know, I mean, if we get to the highest point, like the Dalai Lama, or we imagine is, or whatever, you can just you know be, and everything is everything is fine, you know. But maybe we're in an earlier stage where we feel like oh, I've got to hit a home run. Yes, and, for, the and, of and the you can substitute God for 
a certain kind of parental love. Too. Yeah, right. Yeah, this right. idea that you have to, uh, and and the reason this is important is these are the things that stop us because if we don't try, if we just live in this mundanity, then we've sentenced ourselves in a way. But if we try and fail, it's and and we try and we're still not loved by whoever we put up. This is what Cameron's book is so good, I think, because she makes you look at, okay, well, who have I given power to? In my mind, who's still a, uh, a yeah, powerful yeah. figure who's going to judge me? Yeah. And if I do this work and it's not good enough, how are they going to strike me down? You know? Yeah. And I find your books to be an incredible um, a- antidote to, uh, an, an incredible antidote to that because it's all about protecting a routine of work, right? So can you talk a little bit about the power of rigidity? Uh, okay. Well, it's, it is a sort of a paradox that you ask yourself, well, how does Bob Dylan get to the highest level or whoever we think we want to think about, right? And the answer is they do it in the most mundane way. It's, it's the scales, right? Doing the musical scales. And I'm sure this is the way you write. You only can write one word at a time, right? You know, one sentence at a time. It's, you know, I I'm wearing right now these this pair of work boots that I this this is not the actual pair that I wear each day, but I, I always put on my sort of lucky boots that are work boots, you know, blue collar stuff, and that's the way I kind of look at it. And it's the act of showing up each day. It's like having a practice. This is another thing I've taught talk about is. Uh, when you have a yoga practice or a martial arts practice, you do it every day. You enter the dojo. You have you take your shoes off. You bow to the sacred space, bump it and you just do the best you can that day. And and there's magic in that. There's real magic in that. That's kind of how I think. At some point on a day, maybe you'll get into the flow, and and great stuff will come. But you know, to to do it day by day by day. Energy does concentrate around you as you as you do that. I'm I'm again I'm a big believer in the muse. I think the muse floats over our head, comes by each day, looks down on us, sees Brian there at the keyboard, and each day that that she sees you and she sees you really working hard and you really care, she lets her gifts come to you. I think after after I a love while. it as a metaphor uh, because what I mean for me as an atheist, uh, I. I don't find it necessary to put it on something spectral, but I do find that if if we can uh, get into the flow of doing the work, it allows the inner voice to come out. It allows, that's why morning pages are so helpful to me um, because it, 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 by doing the work, suddenly the thing inside you can crack open just a little mm-hmm. bit and you know, and and come out uh, onto the page. And I agree with you that this ritualized thing of every day doing it is is key, because it's if you're showing up and doing it every day, the resistance at a certain point knows it's it's going to yeah. lose the battle. That's right. right. Yeah, yeah. Because it keeps you keep showing up. You yeah. keep getting in its in its face. Yeah. Did you become like did? Did the rest of you start changing fairly quickly after you committed to doing this? In other words, did the self-loathing continue to abate? Did uh, were you able to build better relationships and all that stuff? Yes, and the, but the also the other thing that kind of the important thing when I talked about that moment when I went to wash yeah. the dishes, it was like another thirty years before I sold a novel. 
you know? So it wasn't like... Before your first screenplay, another 30 years? No, no, years? my screenplays came in there. Yeah, you know, no, but it's it still important, was but another, it was still another 10, but in like... It was another 10 years before I, you, you know, sell this, got I mean, a dollar bill from anybody or or I actually had I done that. something. But it didn't matter to you. No, it didn't matter because I was on, on the road. My feet were on solid ground. I felt like... You know, like I'd been swimming in the in the ocean, and suddenly my feet touched the bottom, and I was okay. You know, so definitely, uh, I relate to it so hard. Yeah, because even in a career that goes on, when you have downturns, like you and I have both written movies that were. I mean, you wrote a book, came a movie that was famously disastrous. Yeah, right. Yeah, and I've had many, that. many, many. I no, but I've had that too. Uh huh. And um. And I talked about this on Twitter recently. I've been using Twitter to try to do a little War of Art stuff for people, just to sort of tell my story in ways that... Uh-huh. And one thing I talked about is that the, the the mere act after I got fired by Martin Scorsese from working on um, a TV show, and then like they basically that same month, Runner Runner was a huge bomb, and an agent said no one would hire us for what Dave and me. Um, and I remember having a really bad day but then getting up and walking across Central Park to go to my office to start writing the next thing. And that each day I started the walk and then got down to my desk and started writing. And it just so happened we were writing Billions then. Uh That that was when we wrote the pilot Uh on spec. The mere thing of knowing that I'd sat down there and two hours later I'd written some pages and as you say, quality be damned, that they couldn't stop me. Uh huh. Yes. From doing the work that I'm supposed to do, I felt all better long before anything. Uh huh. Long before yeah, a billion yeah. sold or anyone wanted yeah. it or my life changed again. And so I'm wondering, have you? How you're smiling, but and and it seems to me in recognition. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, what you just said, the you know the you talk about a heroic act. You walking across the park. That's it. If, if I was writing a movie about that, that would be the final beat, right? The, the, the guy starts to rock across the park. And it's it seems totally unheroic. But in fact, it's like it, it, it's the most heroic thing of all. It's like a dad taking care of his kid, you know, or going to work at, at driving a cab or whatever it is. <laughs> well, it really was a dad taking it, care of his kid because, yeah. I mean, it's how I earn my living. But, but what also, had, but yes. un, to unpack it a little bit, what yeah, really it sort of happened with you, if I get this right, is you stopped allowing other people to judge what was good and what wasn't good. You said, I'm just going over to my office and I'm just going to do my page today. Well, my, my 500 words or whatever it is, and only I am going to be the judge of that. And that's incredibly liber- liberating. That really is like taking the shackles and the chains off, right? You're And so many movies end like that, where where the hero kind of goes off in that state. They're broke. They don't know where they're going, but they've turned the corner. No, but this is brilliant, Steve, what you just said, because if you can learn to define a successful day on your own terms. Yeah, very well put. You've won, right? So if, if you decided, Steve Pressfield decided, a successful day means I wrote, I exercised, and I wrote. Yeah, exactly. And I, you know, um, was kind to my family members. But here's the weird thing, I think, Brian, is someone might be listening to this and say to themselves, as they're torturing themselves with self-loathing, well, shit, I will, why can't I do that? I can. Do, I think in some crazy way, you have to sort of really hit bottom first. 
you know, Martin Scorsese fires you, you know, things, those things are blows. Those are real blows, you yes. know? And I don't know if you can sort of manufacture that moment just by willpower and just say, okay, I'm going to do the equivalent of walking across the park. I, I'd like to think you could, but I don't know. I think it's, if we, if the analogy is getting somebody stopping drinking or realizing I have a problem with alcohol, sometimes they really, really, really have to hit bottom before they make that turn. And it's out of your control. But Viktor Frankl would say you can, you can, you know, there are things you can't control, but then the one of the tricks, and I think you have something in common with Frankl in, the, in your outlook, which is the thing you can learn to control is how you process the events, right? You you can learn to control the way you... Yes, but, I mean, if we're writing a movie and one of our characters is doing yeah. this and we get to, if a screenplay is 120 pages long, yeah. we might be on page 48 and we say, well, shit, why can't the guy just kind of sure. turn, you know? But he can't. He's got to face the Terminator and then the Terminator has to come back But so what should she form. do? What should the person listening do if she feels like, I can't, it's too hard right now to do this or I'm not... Quiet at bottom. What what should she? What steps are you recommending she takes? Uh, just to keep plugging away. Just keep trying. Keep trying, and and maybe uh, hearing something like this, at least will tell you other people are going through the same thing. Everybody yes. has gone through it, except maybe Bob Dylan. He was the only guy. But uh, and if sure, if he were here, he'd say no, that's not true. I went through it back when I was eleven years that's old right. in Hibbing, sure. you know, Minnesota. Yes, but um, but it's and also by the way. You go read the book on the making of Blood on the Tracks, and you know it's a constant battle for Bob yeah, Dylan yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even with the extraordinary talent, yeah, greater right. than any of ours, yeah. uh, getting it to match the idea in his head yeah. is just as hard as it is for all of us. Yeah, right. That that level of talent demands that level of rigor, yeah, right? Yeah. Because well, that's the, the thing, right? Um, your your books, you talk about this professionalism. I translate in my head into um, rigor, into attacking this stuff in a rigorous in a rigorous way. Yeah, I would say that same thing, yeah. And did that come easily to you or not? I do think once I sort of turned that corner, yeah. yes. Once you decided, you once mean. I Once I decided, I didn't even really just, it just sort of, the idea finally clicked for me. I'd never even thought of the idea before, you know, that, oh, now I'm a professional. You know, I wasn't trying to do that and failing. I never even thought of it. And... Um, so yeah, once that corner was turned, uh, you know, I felt like I was in kindergarten, but that I was at least in school, you know. But I so for me, there was this battle. The 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 real sort of artist journey thing you talk about in your book happened at thirty before I wrote the Dave and I wrote our first screenplay. Uh -huh. But what surprised me was it, that it could happen again. It could happen again, right? Uh -huh. Where you're doing the work when you have this other moment because if you're living an, a life where you're trying to do the, this best work. As you said, it's hard. And then sometimes you can get knocked off course by various kinds of resistance, right? By um, the desire, by people offering you money to do other kinds of work. Right, In right. success, even. Or success, I think, you, is, you know. You can be knocked off yeah, course. Yeah, And then you have to go back to these. Yeah, yeah. It's like in the movie, in a Rocky movie, when Rocky throws away all the fancy equipment and decides to just take out the free weights again, yeah, right? right? And go right. back to the beginning. Yeah, that's a great that's a great example, you know? Ideas of training. It always goes back to the basics, right? I mean, you're a golfer, Brian. You know the a story that like- uh, Hogan <laughs> finding so it in the dirt? I, so am I. Well, no, like uh, that supposedly Jack Nicholas 
you know, who lived in Ohio. So in the winter, he would there would be downtime, and every spring he would start to, and he would go back to his old pro Jack Grout, and they would start with alignment. They would just go absolutely. This is a guy's already won fourteen majors or something. They're going back to the absolute basics. What's your grip? What's the alignment? You know, let's just start with little pitches. And I think there's a, a lot of wisdom to that. So how did the six commercial successes or failures, and you've had great commercial successes and real, you I know, also- I don't know about that. But <laughs> you've had, no, you know, you've uh, had a long career of being able to do this work. When something like Bagger Vance happens and the movie, the book is beloved, and then the movie gets these huge stars attached to it and is considered a commercial and critical disaster. <laughs> it sucks, yeah. Yeah, but- what happens to Steve Pressfield? Like, what happens? How? How? What did you do in the week following that movie's release, and in the month following it? That really, it didn't. I, I hate to say it didn't bother me at all. No, this is good to know. I want to know. But mainly because I'd had so many failures before. I'd failed on so many <laughs> levels. You know, at such you know low, horrible, embarrassing levels that uh, you know. I can't say it didn't bother me because I had high hopes. Everybody has hopes, right? Although I'd seen the movie, you know, I'd seen scenes of the movie before it came out, so I already knew that. I it was knew not that's gonna, what happened you know, with me and, and Runner. Runner, I knew Runner Runner was a disaster, so yeah. I wasn't surprised by what happened, but it still hurt. Yeah, but the other thing, and I'm sure this is absolutely true for you, Brian, is by that the point, the time that movie comes out, I'm already on to the next. I'm like 800 pages into the next book, but that's crucial. Yes. And that's crucial. Yes. That's why I always say when you finish one thing, the one thing you absolutely cannot do is stop and like wait and see if it's good. You have to like immediately start the next thing and forget the first thing. That's why it's, it is interesting in a movie career like actors, you know, uh, movie X is went up for an Oscar. The actor or actress is already four movies down the line. They can't even remember. They're trying to remember, what did I do in that movie? Where were I? You know? Yes, so, to keep going. So keep continuing going. to do the work. And it's not- a process to that we're serving the muse. And uh, But still, I mean, your ego is attached to something. It does hurt. But, uh, but you still just showed up every day and just did your work. Oh, yeah, by that time. Because I also And then if, were you insulated? I from- knew if I didn't do that, I'd have to kill myself. You know, Because I'd already been sort of scared straight. I knew what it was like. To, to fail and to and to not do the work, you know? And, and you I still that, do that, that absolutely today, every minute. What do you do every day? That I keep working every day, you know, because I know if that voice says, oh, you know, why don't you, you know, slough off or, you know, not, I don't mean literally I have to actually work every, every single day, but in my mind, um, I, I don't drop the ball, you know? Right. You're doing the thing no matter what. What's a typical <clears throat> day like when you're working in your home and you're not here on the on the road. How do you organize your day? How do you protect your writing time? Uh, okay. Can, should I tell the truth here? Yeah, this tell is the real people truth. People think I'm completely insane when no, I do No, tell this. the real truth. Uh, it, I mean, I get up ridiculously early. I'm up at like 3.15. Awesome. I like go, Jocko Willink, the Navy <laughs> SEAL, yeah. I uh, I go to the gym and, uh, I you know, I, I, uh, I work out. I have, you know, partners that I work with. I have a trainer. I work out. I, I go home. I have breakfast, you know, at the same place every morning. I come home. And finally, by maybe 11, th- I do correspondence, answer emails. First, you do that. I do it first. So you get all that stuff out of the way. You've worked out at 4.30 in the morning or 4 in the morning. Yeah, I do. Do you meditate it, when I, you wake up? I no? don't, but it's that's the gym is kind of my form of meditation, right. you know. Um, 
Now, I don't get, you probably get a hundred times more emails than I do. I get, you know, a few, you know, penis enlargement emails <laughs> sure. and things like that. You know, but there are very few people that I need to answer, you know, Sean, all right, whatever. So I get it out of the way pretty quick. And then, you know, I used to be able to work for four hours a day. I, I really can't do that anymore. You know, two and a half, three hours is, is it. But that is a, you know, as you know what it's like, that's real work. That's like the equivalent of crossing Antarctica, you know? So I, I, do my, I do my work, and then I just totally close the office mentally. I switch my brain off completely. And, you know, I go on to, you know, whatever might be fun in, in, in the evening, you know? You're um, not drinking, though. A lot. No, no, I'm saying, no, no. You're not partying like that because no, no, no. And no you, I might have in a younger days, but uh, but not now. You know, now I watch Rachel Maddow, and that's about you know. <laughs> so now you're just yelling at the television. Yeah, I'm yelling at the screen. You know, the, it's like or yelling with Ray, yeah. stuff like that. Yeah, sure. Uh, but no. and and that stuff, the gym and the writing, nothing can take you away from those things, right? You, right. That's yeah. sacrosanct, protected yeah. time. Like Twyla Tharp, you know, if you've read her book, you know, she goes to the gym. I'm sure a lot of people do, but what I do, and the one feeds on the other, you know, at least for me, you know, because they call uh, weight training resistance training. Yes. And uh, so there it is, right? I'm trying to prep myself and rehearse myself. Do you think it matters whether, uh, do you think someone has and to by know? by the way, let me break in just for one second here. A lot of my day's works aren't worth diddly. Right. You know, there's a lot of really mediocre, crappy days. I just get to the end of the day and I say, did I accomplish anything at sure. all today? You know, and the only thing I can say is I kind of rolled the pee, you know, a few more inches across the table. But that's enough, you know? Yeah, then you've done the thing. I've done well, it. Well, no, that's exactly what I was about to ask. It's perfect. Oh. <laughs> what I was going to say is, do you, because it ties into this. Do you think it matters whether somebody thinks they're talented or knows whether they're nuts or not about this? Like, did you ever, you say you never thought to yourself, well, I'm talented or well, I'm I never good. did. In fact, I don't think I am talented. I think that uh, if I, the only thing I give myself credit for is I'm a hard worker and I'm a, I'm a knucklehead and I'm capable of beating my head into the wall. That I'll go up against anybody with. You became that though, right? You decided Right, that. that's true. That was I a went conscious from going the total opposite of that. Right, you made a conscious decision that, okay, what can I control? I can control the effort. Yes. And also I found, like I said, was saying before, Brian, I thought, well, let me, I'll just do a sort of a half lazy day. You know, I'll work to like level three today. And, and then the day would end, I go, that didn't work. You know, I'm not getting anywhere and I don't feel good. So I, so the, the sort of process itself taught me that I have to go to a higher level. And I'm constantly, I'm sure it's the same way with you, trying to take my, push myself farther and, and have a higher level of aspiration. Um, of course, I'm trying to just earn those few moments. For me, the thing is those few moments where I feel like I'm floating. Like, you know, the, uh, there are these moments when we're writing or shooting. You know, there or are these moments anything. when we're yeah, in right. the pursuit yeah. of this work that we are in that magical alpha place where we're tethered to the earth, but somehow floating in the ether and hyper-present, but also worlds away. Uh -huh. And it doesn't come easily. And it do, you can't, as you said, you, you, this is what you would say when the muse comes over your head, but those moments are so restorative for me. They're so rejuvenating 
that it's it's why and they only show they only come through diligence. Yes. So unfortunately, <laughs> I'm stuck showing up every day. So I'm not thinking as consciously. Yes, you always want to push the work forward and get better and better and better to do the work. But like the other day, I was on set and we had to write it. Uh, we realized, oh, we have to write something for these two people. And uh, Dave and I looked at each other. I was like, well, I'll do the first pass of this. And I went down into the bowels of this place we were in. And it was a, uh, the, the set had 500 extras on and it was this giant scene. And then there was this little part. And I just went down into this little room that we had and I took my laptop out. And again, it was a small scene. It's a half a page of dialogue or a page of dialogue. But I, because of the practice, I know it's only because of the practice. I just wrote it and I was flying for a second. Uh-huh. And those, and it only comes because now the pressure on me to do that, if I hadn't been working every day and hadn't been in the flow, I know my hands would have been frozen above the keyboard. 500 people upstairs, two people sitting at a thing that are expecting right, yeah, me yeah. to hand them yeah. these pages. It's an incredible thing that you did. I mean, if, if if I'm a young person working on that set and I see Brian go down and do that, I go, how the hell did he ever do that? You but know? it's not, but you know it's not magic. <laughs> yeah. You know what that is, is the same reason that tomorrow Lou Ferrigno could curl uh-huh. 200 pounds in each arm uh-huh. because the day before he curled 190 pounds, right? Yeah. I mean, that's the... Um, that's kind of what you're talking about. Okay, I have a few more things for you. Let me tell you, let me pull in one story Please. here if I can. Uh, I have a friend, his name is Hermes Melisanidis, and he won the gold medal in at the 96 Olympic Games in Atlanta in the floor exercise and gymnastics. And uh, he's from Greece, obviously. And uh, he told me this story that after that, you know, obviously it's a big event. Everybody's cheering. They're going crazy. You know, he just won. He did a whatever, a perfect, I don't think it was a perfect 10, but it was close enough. And this uh, reporter, female reporter, asked him, you know, came up and she was all excited, put the mic in his face and said, how does it feel to do the greatest performance of your life under the under the most excruciating pressure? And he said, he said, I wanted to like slap her across the face. He said, but I, he said, I reined myself in because I didn't want to, you know, be cruel or anything. But he said, the real th- proof was he'd done that routine 5,000 times. This was not the greatest performance he'd ever done. You know, he, he didn't rise out of anything. Yes. He just delivered on habit. target. Habit, yeah. habit and diligence. We were, we were, um, a few years ago, I had to have surgery. I had to get my gallbladder taken out. And I knew someone who knew the surgeon who was going to do it. And this person who knew the surgeon was sort of an influential person. And they said, I'll call and I'll tell them, this per- the, the doctor, I know what how you're important say, yeah. you are to me and all this stuff. And I said, do not do that. I, not because I'm, not I'm noble, uh-huh. by the way. Not because uh-huh. I didn't want special treatment. I, I was happy to get um, uh-huh. a good room at the high. I was happy to have the important uh-huh. person set me up. No, I wanted it to be like a shortstop fielding a routine grounder. Yeah. A professional who's fielded thousands of grounders. Yeah. Let him just field the grounder and throw it to first base. Uh, not to know that they're in the World Series right, and it's the right. bottom of the ninth. Like it's, you just it's want an some, oil change, you know? We, he knows how to do it. You know? We were we were at um <laughs> on set the other day and a Chris Bosch, the professional basketball player, came by and my son and I often have this conversation about if, if you could choose somebody to shoot a foul shot. Uh-huh. If you could choose one person to shoot a foul shot to save your life. Uh-huh. And your whole life was on the line. Who would it be? And and Bosch said probably Ray Allen. And I asked the question, uh, or Sam. Actually, my son asked the question. My son said, "But the better question is, uh, 
would uh, you tell him ah, that it that was for a, your life? That is a great That's question. That's my son asked that, Sam. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And Chris Bosch said, Yes. I just know. He said, I just say, make a foul shot. Oh, uh huh. Just make a foul shot because ah. he's in the practice of ah. making foul shots. Ah. Um, That's which a great answer, yeah. You're in the practice of making foul shots. Just get up there and shoot the foul shot. Well, shoot we 200 all, of them. All of us are, yeah. So a couple more things. Um, what did the response to War of Art show you or teach you? Uh, one thing is when I wrote this, and I think you'll relate to this completely, Brian, I thought only write, writers will relate to this. The blank page, they'll understand, but nobody else is going to care. But I was amazed that actors... And which I still don't understand. I still don't understand how how actors have resistance, but they sure do because I've talked to a few classes and they're just yes, you know they, they say anyone the war trying of art. To do so that was the sort of the lesson that everybody f- seems to feel this phenomenon. Well, founders of co- entrepreneurs and founders really. Yeah, I guess that's right? true too. Yeah, entrepreneurs. Yeah, they relate because they're going out on a limb completely. They're risking everything. They're you know walking the plank. Yeah, and how do you decide not to just go bowling in the morning? Yeah, right. Yeah. Instead of trying to make those scary phone calls. Yeah. So I think they relate to it too. But, um, you know, you really teach about how we don't need these external voices. Yet you've a be- validation, Yeah, you but mean? you've become the guru of sorts. And I wonder how you process that, because I know it's not your aim at all. No, and I really, I'm, very, quite, I'm sort of embarrassed even to, to, to hear that, but. Um, yeah, how do you answer the people who look to you, you know, when they give you the look with that look in their eyes of wanting some sort of Buddha's kiss? Uh, I, I don't know what to, to say. I mean, uh, no, I mean, it's, it's easy for me to talk to you here because we're fellow soldiers and we know what we're talking about. But I certainly, I don't want anybody to look to me in that way because they're giving away their power to yes. me and they're not helping themselves, you know? That's really crucial. Yes. Yeah. Because they don't, don't need- Don't look to anybody, you know? It's all, I'm happy to have produced this sort of stuff in book form where someone privately in, the, in their own silence or their own head can read it and they don't have to, nobody's laying it on them, you know, yeah, in a because seminar. Because there's no benediction <clears throat> we can give them. You can't give True. them a benediction, right? Absolutely you not. You can't it's, touch them yeah. And, yeah, yeah. and give it to the Plus, only... it's the most thankless thing in the world to try because, oh, you know. Say more about that. Yes. I'm, because like your I recipe say, is swing the fucking sledgehammer, <laughs> right? That's why it's hard. But also, like I said, I think you have to hit a certain point. You have to hit bottom in your own way, whatever that means to you, before you're ready to hear. It's like that old thing of... When the student is ready, the teacher will appear. But if the student isn't ready, the greatest teacher in the world can be there. And well, Siddhartha is one of my favorite books, and you know, as fascinating as Siddhartha's story is, that's the perfected man. It's it's less interesting than Govinda's story because Govinda is going through the thing and is the acolyte who's not ready until the very very end when they cross the river and he can finally get just the kiss on the forehead that. Uh, and he's finally ready to just understand, right? As <laughs> I'm embarrassed to, to say I don't, I'm not uh, familiar with the Siddhartha, story. The Buddha, it's the it's the Buddha story uh-huh. by Herman Hesse. I oh, actually read it, believe it or not, but I don't remember. Well, you probably read it when you were <laughs> yeah, right. young and before, <laughs> yeah. but it is yeah. it is this sort of stern, story. Do you uh, find it hard to live up to the version of, of you in print? The, the, no, because the, I don't even think about it, you know? You don't care. I mean, I'm really in, it's so hard just doing it day to day, as you know. It takes all your resources and all your energy. I'm just trying to do that. I'm just a soldier in the trenches like you. 
We are fellow soldiers in the trenches. <laughs> um, you can't really find Steve Pressfield on social media, though he does have a blog. Yes, I do. I have a blog. Yeah. What's your website? It's just www.stephenpressfield.com. So you can go there if you want to interact uh, in some way with his work on a, an ongoing basis. Although I probably won't answer. That's you. fine. <laughs> what you have, unless the guys, unless they send you the penis unless enlargement you, stuff. Yeah, then, yeah. Those I always answer. Sure. But, um, but also read these books. And, and I'm talking a lot about the nonfiction because his, he did just write this, this new book, but his novels are uh, all of this spirit through characters of uh, mythic power and force trying to enact this stuff um, in in their lives and in those worlds. So I recommend the novels. And um, I have to say that these books, The War of Art and now The Artist's Journey, um, are crucial for people trying to find, um, to, trying to figure out how to put one foot in front of the other and do the work they feel they were born to do. So, Steve, man, thank you for coming here. Thank you for writing these books. Thanks for doing the thing that you do. Well, thanks for the kind words, Brian. I knew this was going to be a good experience because I knew you would ask, you know, really interesting stuff that would make me think and that I haven't been asked before. And it was even better than I thought it was. And you're terrific at doing this, you know. Oh, and uh, thanks. my hat's off to you for not only your work on billions and all the other stuff you're doing, but this this stuff is great on the moment. Thank you, man. Yeah, no, I um, this feels kind of sacred to me to do this. Uh, hey, everybody, you can find me on Twitter because I will waste my time there uh, constantly at Brian Koppelman, and uh, you can email me themomentbk at gmail.com, But don't send me screenplay ideas, pitches. Uh, don't ask me to connect you with Pressfield because I won't. Hey, have fun with Seth Godin tomorrow. Okay, that's great. I'll say hi for you. Good. Bye, everybody. <laughs>